So we're going to be continuing our series on Joseph this week, and today we are going to be covering three chapters, Genesis 42 through 44. So fair warning, we are going to be reading a decent amount, but the good news for you is that I don't read audiobooks for a living, so we're not going to read all three chapters. We are going to be reading uh, some important, crucial pieces in them, uh, but not necessarily the whole of all three. And Joseph, as an odyssey of forgiveness, which is what this whole series has been taglined as, uh, these three chapters in this odyssey of forgiveness are going to lead us to Genesis 45, the climactic forgiveness where Joseph reveals his identity to his brothers. But before we can get there, God has to take Joseph and his brothers and walk them through the real, hard, gritty process of forgiveness and grace. Because whether you are a Christian for a day or you are a Christian for a long time, that's exactly what forgiveness is. It's hard, it's gritty, and sometimes it can be pretty painful. But through this process, we are going to see Joseph and some unlikely characters experience some radical transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit. So right now we are jumping into Genesis 42, but before that we see Joseph. He's 37 years old at the time. He has now been in Egypt for two decades. He is currently second in command of the entire nation, the vizier as he is known. He has successfully led Egypt through seven years of abundant harvest, and they are coming into the seven years of famine that he interpreted in Pharaoh's dream. And it's because of Joseph that Egypt is so well prepared for this famine that there are foreigners from all over the world who come to buy grain in Egypt. And this is pretty incredible because after we've seen Joseph go through uh, slavery, false accusations of misconduct, false and wrongful imprisonment, we finally see him in a position where he is thriving and it is because God took the trials that Joseph had to endure, and Joseph grew through them by God's power. So at the start of Genesis 42, we see not Joseph, but Jacob, his father, or Israel as he's sometimes called. He is in Hebron right here in the land of Canaan. The famine has reached there. It has spread all over the world. Genesis 41, 57 says that. And Joseph is over here in Avaris, the ancient capital of Egypt at the time. It's approximately about a 250-mile journey. That number really struck me because that's also the exact same distance it is from my hometown to the greatest public university of all time, South Dakota State. So uh, got that plug in for the live stream. So I'm one for one right now. No, I'm just kidding. But this is a 250-mile journey that Jacob is going to send his sons on to go buy grain because they need food. But rather than sending 11 brothers, check out what it says, Genesis 42, verse 4. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Hmm. Now, there's a couple of interesting observations to be made here. Uh, if you remember from everything we've read in Genesis, Jacob's family is more dysfunctional than an episode of Tiger King. And so there's any number of reasons that Jacob wouldn't want to send Benjamin. The first is that Benjamin is Joseph's full brother, which means he is also the son of Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife. The other ten brothers are their half-brothers, and they are treated as such because they aren't Rachel's kids. So after 20 years, we still see Jacob loves to play favorites, and just like he was playing favorites with Joseph, he is now showing favoritism to Benjamin. 
We also see Jacob is unwilling to send Benjamin because he feared that harm might happen to him. Now, why would Jacob have to be fearful for Benjamin? There's a couple of different theories we can come up with. One is that Jacob suspected the brothers weren't telling him the whole truth about Joseph. Maybe he did believe their, their excuses and why Joseph passed away, but he saw the way his sons lived. Check out Genesis 34, 35, and 38. And he saw the questionable character of his sons and said, not for Benjamin. Maybe he was just being overprotective because Benjamin was his favorite. Whatever the reason is, though, we can see that while Joseph's life, his character, and his faith had undergone serious transformation over the last 20 years, his family wasn't really showing anything. And you would kind of hope that after two decades, they might have grown up a little bit. But in any sense, the brothers go off to Egypt, they encounter, but they don't recognize Joseph. And in chapter 42, verse 6, this is what their first interaction in 20 years looks like. Now, Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. In verse 9, it even goes on to say, And Joseph remembered the dreams he had dreamed of them. Remember, this whole saga, this whole odyssey and forgiveness started because Joseph, as an immature teenager, told his brothers, I had a dream. You're going to bow before me one day. But can we put ourselves in Joseph's shoes for just a minute? The last time that Joseph would have seen his brothers, they mercilessly beat him, they stripped him of his technicolor dream coat, and they sold him into slavery. And now the tables have turned and they are bowing at his feet. They don't recognize him. He's probably clad in some kind of traditional Egyptian garb. But can you imagine the hurt that Joseph is re-experiencing in this moment? His defenses are probably up internally. It's no wonder why he's speaking roughly to them. But it's this first interaction with, between Joseph and his brothers that points us to this reality. No matter how mature your faith in God is, you can still struggle with hurt. Every single one of us in this room, every single one of you watching on the live stream, we're all human. We all experience the brokenness of the world that we live in. And let's be real, we contribute to it as well. We can hurt people, and people can hurt us. Joseph's brothers hurt him by selling him into slavery, and now he's being confronted with the choice of how he gets to respond to them. For us in 2020, there's no shortage of ways that we can hurt other people. Just look at the debate on wearing masks. Look at how we treat people who are different politically than us. Parents, when we disagree with how they raise their kids. Coworkers, when they aren't sharing the load. You don't even have to look past a lot of churches to see that people can hurt other people. And in our brokenness and sin, we have to live with the reality that we can get hurt, but we have a responsibility to not hurt others as well. Because when we are confronted with hurt or people who can hurt us, it can stir pain back up again and make us act in ways that are uncharacteristic of ourselves. And even as the most mature believers of our faith in Christ struggle with hurt, we see this other reality, that receiving grace and showing grace is an everyday necessity. You and I, we are all in desperate need of the gospel, amen? 
a radical gospel that lavishes God's amazing grace on you and I, no matter how badly or how often we screw up. If you feel like being real with yourself today, church, ask yourself these questions. Has there ever been a time in your life where you questioned whether or not God could love you in spite of the sins and the screw-ups that you've done in life? Or have you ever questioned if you are worthy of God's love? I need you to understand this. Here's the real 100% truth of the matter, church. The gospel reminds me that it is not about whether I feel or even am worthy of God, but it is about how God in his goodness and his mercy sent that which was most precious to him, his only son, Jesus Christ, to die on a, cro- or die on a cross in our place for our sins. And it is Jesus on that cross who makes me worthy. It is Jesus on that cross who makes us worthy of God's love, forgiveness, and grace. And we need to be reminded of that every single day so that we can receive God's love well and we can show it to others well, even those who hurt or wrong us. In order to give grace, you need to receive it. And my prayer for all of you, church, is that if there is anything blocking you from receiving the full, infinite, unconditional loving grace of God, that that wall would be torn down and that when you finally would receive that grace, that you would show it to a world that is in desperate need of the same Jesus that you are. Now, despite Joseph's current circumstances, he is, in fact, exercising a lot of grace right here. Here he is, he's remembering the dreams of his brothers, which likely means he's remembering, possibly re-experiencing all of the hurt and the emotions that he last endured with them. But he doesn't immediately depose of them. He doesn't commit them to some harsh, unjust punishment. Rather, God, as the hero of this story, is using Joseph's pain to bring about fruitfulness, just like Pastor Brent talked about a week ago. And we are also going to see that through the dark times, Joseph and his brothers have to endure, just like Pastor Dave talked about two weeks ago, that this is going to become a family transformed to trust and pursue God with all their hearts. And from all of the hurt and all of the brokenness that we have seen throughout this entire story, we are going to see something beautiful come out of the whole ordeal. As Joseph begins to accuse his brothers of being spies, his brothers try to defend themselves by informing this governor of Egypt that we are not just 10 brothers. We are, in fact, 12 brothers. But one is dead, and the youngest is with our dad. Why you would choose to introduce yourself this way, I've got nothing. But this interaction begins a series of tests that Joseph puts his brothers through for two reasons. Number one, it's to give them clues about his identity. It is clear to us that Joseph has at least some desire to reconcile with his family, or at the very least, to see Jacob and Benjamin again. But more importantly, reason number two is before he can see them again, before he can reconcile with them, he has to make sure that his brother's hearts have changed. Remember the last time that he saw his brothers, they caused him great harm. And why would anybody want to endure that kind of pain again? And because of this interaction, not only do we see that mature Christians can struggle with hurt, not only is grace an everyday exercise, but here are the next two points. Boundaries are biblical, and it is just to test those who hurt you before they re-enter your life. Let me read those for you again. Boundaries are biblical, and it is just to test those who hurt you before they re-enter your life. 
as Christians, can we be honest for a second? Like, we struggle with boundaries a lot. Satan, the world, even our fellow Christians make us believe that setting boundaries goes against our call to love others unconditionally, to serve them well, to be cheerful givers. But church, I'm here to tell you that this is the furthest thing from the truth. Boundaries are absolutely a necessary part of the Christian life. The perfect example of this, of course, is Jesus. And we see all throughout Scripture, Matthew 26, Mark 4, Luke 7, Matthew 12, Matthew 16. We could just keep rattling on Scriptures, but you get the point. But we see all throughout God's Word that Jesus took time to meet his personal needs and spend time alone with God. He said no and even rebuked problematic behaviors like entitlement, abuse, and manipulation. And even when he would go to help people, on occasion, he would ask them testing questions. Look at the sick man at the pool in John 5. Jesus looks at him and says, do you want to be healed? Ephesians 4.32 says this, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Our call, church, is to love and forgive others readily, but reconciliation can sometimes take longer than we want. If someone has hurt you deeply, whether it's a parent, a spouse, a friend, whoever it is, and they just want to re-enter your life without any notice, it isn't loving to just let them back in because. Because if God hasn't intervened on their heart, if God hasn't worked on them or you in some instances— you might be liable to experience and they might be liable to give the exact same hurt that fractured your relationship in the first place. But just like it isn't loving to let them back in without any warning, it also isn't loving to keep them at a distance forever without giving them the opportunity to show that God has transformed them. Joseph provides a great example for us on how to test others to see if they have changed because it protects him, it protects us, from further hurt, but more importantly, it allows the Holy Spirit to work on both of your hearts and reconciliation to happen if it's supposed to. So Joseph's first test is accusing his brothers of being spies. Shortly after this, he throws his brothers in jail for three days, and after that time, he releases all but Simeon, the second oldest brother, and gives them the opportunity to bring grain home to their land on the condition that they will return to Egypt with their youngest brother, Benjamin. And we see the reason for this in Genesis 42:18. Joseph says this to his brothers, For I fear God, not one of the Egyptian gods, but the Hebrew God, another indication of Joseph's identity. And as they're gearing up to return home, the brothers are talking, and via an interpreter, Joseph overhears them. And in Genesis 42, verse 21, this is what their conversation looks like. Then they said to one another, In truth we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there is a reckoning for his blood. In response to this conversation, Joseph begins to weep because it's the first sign of remorse he has ever seen regarding the way that his brothers treated him. And what we get to see, church, is that maybe, just maybe, this family, this dysfunctional, messy family that by all of our observations has been spiritually and morally stagnant for two decades— is anything but, because God has been working on their hearts. 
But not only does Joseph give them grain, he secretly, secretly returns the money for that grain as well. Now, let's be real here. Most of us, if we found the money in our grocery bags when we're coming home from Target, Walmart, Super One, wherever it is, we probably would go return it because we need to pay with it. But at least for a little bit, you might be thinking, sweet, my prodigal money came back to my wallet. This is awesome. But the reality is, is that while we might find it exciting, Joseph's brothers are terrified of this. And it's because of the money instance, and it's because of the conversation that we just read about that is going to play a very crucial key role in what's to come. But the brothers return, they're a little bit shaken about the money, and they see Jacob greatly distressed about losing Simeon, but not distressed enough to give Benjamin up temporarily. So for two years, these brothers negotiate with their father to give them Benjamin for a couple of days so that they can go get more grain and they can go get their brother back. Like, you have to feel a little bit bad for Simeon here. He's probably thinking, great, my brothers are going to be back in like a month's time. It's going to be awesome. Two years later. <laughs> and so we're watching these negotiations go on like it's some kind of business deal, like an episode of The Apprentice. And it isn't until Judah, arguably the most dysfunctional, definitely the laughingstock brother of the family, steps up in chapter 43, and he makes an impassioned speech to his father, and Jacob finally relents. This is what it says in Genesis 43, starting in verse 8. And Judah said to his father Israel, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die both we and you and also our little ones, I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. Church, are you seeing this? This is so exciting. Judah, possibly the messiest of Joseph's brothers, definitely the one with the most questionable character, is offering his life and reputation for the safety of Benjamin. The brother who once convinced his other brothers to sell Joseph into slavery, not as an act of mercy, but as an exploitation for profit, is now willing to sacrifice his own well-being. God is at work in this dysfunctional family and he is making something beautiful out of it. So when the brothers return to Egypt, they try to return their money from the original visit, and the steward of Joseph goes, nope, we have your money. God must have returned it to you. And as instructed by Joseph, the steward invites the brothers to eat with him that evening, and Joseph sees the brothers, he sees Benjamin, and he asks this question, is your father well? And upon hearing that Jacob is healthy, he is alive, and upon seeing Benjamin, it says that Joseph had to exit the room and weep. He is weeping with compassion and joy from seeing his brother healthy and alive. And we also see that because Benjamin is alive and nothing bad has happened to him, it is another clear indication that God is working on this dysfunctional family. Joseph continues to test them with small hints. He uh, seats them in order of birth, Reuben to Benjamin. He even gives a nod to Jacob's favoritism by giving Benjamin five times the banquet portions of the rest of the brothers. At some point, you would think if you were one of them that you might catch on to what's happening, but let's be real here. There's a famine. There's food in front of them. They're dudes. Full hearts, fuller bellies it is, I guess. 
The final test, though, and the penultimate redemption comes in Genesis 44. The 11 brothers are preparing to journey home with more grain, and Joseph wants to see how the brothers will respond to a full frontal screw-up by Benjamin. Will they inflict the same brutality that they did to Joseph 22 years ago? So Joseph tells his stewards to return the money to the grain sacks like he did on their first visit, but he also adds a little side thing. He takes his silver drinking cup and says, put it in Benjamin's bag. And the brothers leave, and they are traveling out of town. The steward reaches them not so far out and catches them in the act of stealing this cup. They dump out their grain, and they see in Benjamin's bag the silver chalice, and the mood flips in an instant. They shamefully return home to Joseph, terrified for their lives. And this church, this is the big moment. This is the dark moment, the darkest hour for the brothers. The evidence is stacked against them. We know from chapter 42 when they find the money, when they have that conversation, that they believe they are being punished by God finally for what they did to Joseph so long ago. And against their father's requests, wishes, against Judah's pledge, they are now liable to return home 10 of 11 brothers. In verse 13, it even says, Then they tore their clothes, which is an act that is only done in great sorrow and lament. Another indication that God is again at work. But these brothers can no longer run from their messiness. They can no longer run from their brokenness. Joseph's test has finally succeeded in putting the brothers in a position to see if they have changed or not. And this is what we see Joseph say to the brothers. Genesis 44, verse 17. Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. In other words, look, Benjamin was the one who was found with the cup. Y'all can go home, and he will stay here with me. He will be my servant. And that's when Judah, the messy, immoral, conniving brother who exploited Joseph for profit 22 years earlier, steps up to the plate. And in verses 18 through 34, it gives the longest speech in the book of Genesis, an impassioned plea for Benjamin's life. And in verses 32 through 34, the conclusion of this speech, this is what Judah says. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Twenty-two years, church. Twenty-two years of hurt, of familial dysfunction, of deceit, exploitation, slavery, false accusations, wrongful imprisonment, and in this moment, God redeems all of it. Through the worst possible candidate in Judah, mind you, but praise God that Judah's qualifications don't matter to the hero and the author of the story. He is God, and God can transform anyone. 
It is God who took the fisherman with the temper in Peter and converted him into the stalwart leader of the early church. It is God who took Saul, the persecutor of Christ, and transformed him into one of the greatest apostles and contributors to our Christian faith. It is God who took a wicked, self-centered brother in Judah and said, no, your heart is going to be one that is willing to serve and die on behalf of Benjamin. And it is God who is transforming you every day to live a life that points people back to him. God can transform anyone, and God can use anyone for his purposes. You might have logged on to the live stream today. You might have come into this building totally exhausted, feeling useless, wondering if you're worthy of God's love, wondering if your life has purpose and value. And I need you to understand that just like Judah and Joseph, God can still use too. God can still use you too. God can transform anyone. He can use anyone because his plans don't depend on you. His plans depend on his unlimited goodness, his unconditional love, his amazing grace. It is God who transforms the hearts of us, the unlovable people, and gives them the grace necessary to live changed lives. That's the beauty of the gospel, church. God did, God does, God will do the hard work. And it is us who get to live the benefits of a restored life with Jesus. And it's because of what we see in these three chapters, and this is our final point, that we can confidently say, through God, beauty can come from brokenness. What is your darkest hour? What is your Joseph in prison, your Benjamin with the cup moment? Maybe it's a divorce, a health concern, a prodigal family member. There's no shortage of pain that we deal with. But I can promise you this. God can redeem those things. He might not change it the way you want him to. He might not fix it the way that you expect. He might not heal you the way that he desires, but he can redeem it. And he will redeem it for his glory and for your good. I am a product of that truth. It's a story we'll talk about next week. And if you believe the gospel, you're a product of that truth as well. Because we have been brought together by the redemption we have found in Jesus Christ. We are the church. The messy, awkward bride of Christ, a people of dysfunction, struggling to live the way that God wants us to. But you know what? It doesn't matter how ugly and messy and dysfunctional we are, Lakewood. Jesus loves his bride, and Jesus will make his bride beautiful. Allow yourselves, church, to get out of the way. Surrender your heart and life to the life-saving God. Give him the freedom to restore your heart so that when you are confronted with hurt and the people that hurt you, you can show radical, amazing grace because you receive God's grace daily. You are not beyond his transformation. You are not beyond his purposes. You are not beyond his love. Because just like Judah stood in Benjamin's place, the lion of Judah stood in our place at the cross. And he made our brokenness and our sin into something beautiful. And he is not finished with you yet. Would you pray with me, please? Gracious God, thank you so much for first loving us. 
thank you for the reality that it has nothing to do with us but by your goodness, your faithfulness, and your love for us, that beauty can come from the broken and dark parts of our life. Lord, thank you that we have an indescribable hope in you because you gave up what was most precious to you in your son, Jesus. Lord, I pray that as we exit this building that we would live in that reality that beauty can come from brokenness by your hand alone. And Lord, that we would receive and show grace to others even when we are dealing with hurt. Lord, would we be ready to forgive others? Would we be ready to love them even if boundaries have to be put in place to protect us and them from further harm? And Lord, would we faithfully listen and walk and love and live with you that we can live lives that point people back to you, the God of our salvation. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we give you the glory. In your precious name, amen.